Drive Show with Peter Vlahos. Toolmark, your complete tool centre. Proudly WA owned and operated for over 40 years. Yeah, it's great to have your company. Thanks to uh, Hayes and Mardo for the run home. They'll be back again uh, tomorrow between 3 and 5, wherever you may be listening on uh, 657 SEN, SENWA on the SEN app, SEN Spirit 621 in Bunbury and through the southwest on digital radio at SEN Peel and SEN Kalgoorlie 1611. Uh, Peter Vlahos with you for the next hour. We're going to wrap up everything in sport now. There was a conversation, and it's been had for the last uh, you know, few weeks, on what the AFL could possibly install in the AFL calendar to spice up things a little. It's on the back end, and the conversation raged after the Rugby League Magic Round, where, of course, all teams in the NRL converged on Brisbane and Suncorp Stadium and played all games at that venue on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And it was a huge success, and it's been something that's been incorporated into the season. As well as that, the Rugby League has also the State of Origin, and Game 1, as we know, is next week. Uh, And after that, a couple of weeks after that, Game 2 will be here, and the third one uh, will complete the series between... Queensland and New South Wales. Gary Lyon and other people on SEN have stated maybe the AFL needs to spice up the season. As we know, attendances aren't what they used to be. Interest in the game post-COVID is probably not the the level that it was pre-COVID. Our free-to-air TV ratings have just dipped a fraction. So what do you do to try and add something to the calendar when it comes to AFL footy? And a lot has been discussed regarding state of origin and whether there's a chance of bringing that back. State versus state, teammate versus teammate, which was the ingredient that caused so much interest when it was incorporated back in 1977. So I'm going to speak to the gentleman that started it all. Was the reason state of origin happened and had such success during the 70s, 80s and into the early 90s before, of course, it fell away. Leon Larkin hasn't lived in Perth for 30 years, and I caught up with him in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates uh, just a short time ago, and we'll feature that interview a bit later on. And take us back to that time when football was the rage and state of origin, AFL beat the NRL to the punch and uh, started playing, as I said, state v. state, teammate against teammate. So Leon Larkin will be featured on the program in a little while. We'll also speak to Brett Phillips, as Hayes and Mardo mentioned, an enormous match tomorrow morning our time uh, in the context of gladiators and players at the at the head of their sport. We're talking about Novak Djokovic take on Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals of the French Open. And it is the first Grand Slam in a year with both Novak and Rafael in the field. They are two titans of the game. And they'll fight to each other for a record 59th time. And it's a shame, really, that uh, tomorrow morning's match is only a quarter final because, as we know, Rafael Nadal has had some injuries concerns and his ranking uh, has just dipped uh, a couple of places. So all of a sudden, he meets the number one at the quarterfinal stage. So Brett Phillips is going to join us in just a while. But first, let's bring us up to date. And it was a big story last night, and it continued, of course, today. The health of West Coast Eagles legend Peter Matera. And it's come out his brother Phil, also an Eagles great, said 
it was uh, unlikely that he would have survived his heart attack on Sunday if his wife hadn't been nearby to rush him to hospital. In fact, uh, Phil Matera was featured on Scotty and Goss this morning, and for those people that may have missed it, uh, this is what he had to say, just in brief, about where Peter Matera is right now regarding his recovery. Mate, this morning he's doing a lot better. He's uh, up and about, and he's uh, nice and bright. He's uh, yeah, he's still in ICU. Obviously, keen to get out of there as soon as he can, but he's uh, obviously under the doctor's instructions to. Hopefully later on today he'll move out into a, into the ward possibly. We're not too sure yet. We're about to head down to the hospital shortly. But um, I've been on the phone to him this morning, so he's uh, he was up early on the phone, so he's uh, he's up and about, which is a good thing. And uh, we're hoping for a really speedy recovery. Although he he does have uh, another small operation ahead of him, put a couple of stents in a couple of uh, his arteries and heart, and. There's a one more, I think. There's one more operation he needs to have in a couple of weeks' time when he, be, when he gets over this first one. And then uh, yeah, hopefully he'll be on, on the road to recovery. But, uh, mate, what a shock. He's gone out. You know, he's playing farmer these days. He's got, the buddy, <laughs> he's got his farmer boots on, the Cobra hat, you know, getting around the farm like, like Farmer Pete. But uh, he went out to chop some woody reckons in the next minute. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, got some chest pains. And lucky Susie and Molly were down with him. So, uh and the uh, yeah was able to she was able to get him to the hospital as soon as he could. So yeah. touch wood, mate, he's uh, he's going to be all right. And it was, wasn't uh, yeah, it wasn't too major, hopefully. Uh, it's, uh, it's I guess it's all about timing, and um, we are very very grateful that um, he's going to be all right, mate. What did he say to you this morning, Fido? Um, you know, said you just. I oh, just said he wants to have a shower, mate. Yeah, he wants <laughs> to get out and have a shower and get out of the get out of the intensive care. But so you know what he's like. He's pretty up and about, and. Uh, He'd rather be out doing something than sitting in, in ICU, but obviously it's all the doctors. Scotty, he's pretty uh, pretty excited to be uh, to be feeling a lot better than he was yesterday and the day before that. So yeah, that's just he's got to take it easy. But he'll um, he'll certainly be you know um, hopefully in a couple of weeks' time back to himself. But we were uh, actually heading to Adelaide on Friday. We'd organised a. Uh, a week of golf, we're going over to watch Adelaide Eagles. Well, I'm still going, obviously, but he, he's not coming. But we're going to play at uh, the Royal Adelaide oh, course and Grains nice. and Kiyunga. Oh, nice, up, but, uh, nice, Unfortunately, nice. he's uh, not going to be coming. Uh, just in regards to um, you saying you're going to Adelaide, he was down, of course, to come to the... Reunion of 92 in three weeks' time. I'd imagine, I mean, I'm, I'm cut before the horse, but I'd, I'd be doubtful very much where he'll be flying over. Yeah, he will be probably very doubtful, mate. He'll be probably on the recovery from his second operation, I would have thought, at that time. But, um, yeah, he was only talking last week about how excited he was to catch up with him. And I was on the phone to Louis McKenna yesterday. He's given his regards, but... Um, how they were all pretty keen to catch up and um, remember the, the the days of the '92 Premiership, but um, yeah, I doubt very much he'll be over there. Hey, knowing those boys like we uh, like we do, Fido, I I don't think a '92 reunion is probably the best place for Rude's health right now. <laughs> <laughs> of course not, definitely not. So it's probably a good thing he stays away. Uh, there you go. That was uh, Fido, as he was known to his teammates, including Scotty Cummings, uh, Phil Matera, uh, speaking from. Uh, uh, Melbourne, uh, and in particular, as I said, the bedside there of his brother, Peter Matera. Uh, so uh, we wish him a speedy recovery. But things look like uh, they're on the way up regarding uh, the West Coast Eagles legend, Peter, who sustained that heart attack on Sunday. And uh, he's a pretty lucky man.
Of course, uh, you can join us any time on the Temperate Bedshed text line 0487 736 736. Of course, Bedshed, experts in temper mattresses, pillows and adjustable bases. Check the range of temper products in store or visit bedshed.com.au or you can give us a tinkle on the Scarborough Toyota open line. You can call 13 12 55 and you can sell your car to Scarborough Toyota there in Scarborough Beach Road in Osmond Park. As I mentioned, uh, we'll look at the uh, the history of State of Origin Australian Rules football ahead of the State of Origin NRL, which has become now more significant, they reckon, than their own grand final. And the call from people around the AFL community to provide something rather than home and away games, finals and a grand final. Does the AFL need something else to maybe rekindle a bit of enthusiasm that has been lost during the couple of years of COVID. I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, State of Origin footy. Were you there in those days in the late 70s and 80s? And were you one uh, of those people that wagged either school or work to get down to Subiaco Oval on a Tuesday afternoon? It's quite bizarre, wasn't it? Tuesday afternoon. And they used to hang from the rafters. 0487 736 736, the temperate bedshed text line. Or you can give us a call if you like and have a chat about your experiences, 13 12 55, because later in the program, we're going to be reliving uh, the origins of state of origin football here in Perth and, of course, the AFL. We'll take a break. Uh, it's nine past five. This is Drive with Peter Vlahos. All thanks to Toolmart, the complete tool centre. The Drive Show with Peter Vlahos. Toolmart, your complete tool centre. Proudly WA owned and operated for over 40 years. It was my last match against him was, I think, last year here. So uh, I didn't play uh, this kind of matches for the last three months. Uh, so it's going to be a, a big challenge for me. Uh, of course, he, he he already won, I think, the last uh, nine matches in a row, uh, winning in Rome and now winning here in straight sets every match. Probably he will be confident. You know, being in the era with, with Federer and Nadal, you know, the, the, the guys that's, that are greats of, of the game. So, of course, that makes the, the success even bigger. And on the other hand, uh, the downside of being number one is that you're always being uh, chased by everyone else uh, that wants to dethrone you and uh, wants to win against you in every single match, regardless of the size or category of the tournament. So, um, but that's <clears throat> something I, you know, was fortunately throughout throughout many years gotten used to that kind of feeling. Yeah, so it's going to be an absolute enormous match. Quarter-final, as we said, unfortunately, it's not the final, but because of uh, Nadal's non-activity uh, over the past 12 months due to injury, he's just gone down the, the rankings a couple, and all of a sudden it, he's come to the quarter-finals that he takes on the number one seed. Nadal turns 36 on Friday, and Djokovic turned 35 just a short time ago, May the 22nd, so just over a week ago, the first day of the French Open. So they are gladiators and uh, they have headed what has been a special generation of men's tennis together with Roger Federer and a man that will be certainly burning the midnight oil. Viewing it all in the early hours of tomorrow morning is our SEN tennis expert and the host of the first serve in Brett Phillips. Brett, a very good evening to you. Hey, Peter. Nice to uh, join you here. The calm before the storm. We don't get sick of these two going around and we've had a lot of instalments 
of Djokovic and the data to reflect on him. I can only think of I can only think of one absolute shocker, uh, Pete, and that was that Australian Open final going back what just a handful of years ago when uh, Djokovic won in straight sets in about an hour and a half. Uh, the rest, though, have been um, you know epics or uh, or certainly high quality matches, even if they've been straight sets. Um, you know, they've, they've been deep sets and and you know taxing points. Uh, between these two. So, yeah, when you've got two who are so top shelf, we expect nothing less, but it will be fascinating. I was just listening to Rafa then, and I watched his whole press conference after the Felix uh, match. You know, I, I think he sort of... I don't know whether he's trying to underplay a little bit. I think there's some, you know, there's some genuine concern internally of himself physically, and, yes, he wanted to play during the day, but he gets a few extra hours to prepare for night. Uh, but he is the ultimate warrior, um, you know, I think there is the genuine feeling in his heart that, you know, it's getting closer to the end of how many French Opens he's going to play and wanting to make the most of that. But he knows he's up against a guy who's who's found his mojo again. He's, he's in red-hot form, Djokovic. He's seeing it like a beach ball. So he knows it's a massive challenge. And isn't it fascinating um, that for all his dominance at the French Open, we've got him as the underdog. and oh, I've got him as the underdog, certainly, in this match. Mm, interesting. When you look at Nadal... His record at the French Open is 109 wins, three losses with a record 13 championships. And as you said, he goes in as the underdog. Uh, it is Djokovic who leads overall 30 to 28. And the only thing that really will stand in the way of Nadal, because age-wise they're about the same, he's no doubt, even though he, he said, I'm not, uh, he certainly is the king of clay, is whether his body stands up. Correct? Yeah, correct. And... You know, the foot is obviously a huge issue. Um, but, I mean, you know, if, you, if you're just watching that Felix match, I mean, he's not going to... He doesn't show that pain out on court. The um, I can't think of Rafa, you know, having... Uh, in more recent times, having a medical time out on court. He, um, you know, he, he gets on with things. He just... He grits the teeth. I mean, he's the ultimate warrior, ultimate competitor. Uh, and, and the speed he's getting to. Uh, you know, he obviously stands so far back initially to retrieve. And then... You know, you think you've got uh, the drop shot covered against Nadal, but he anticipates his, his his speed and movement to get forward, and his hands have always been terrific at the net. I mean, yeah, it's look, it's it's fascinating to see how it will play out. I just think Djokovic is certainly the fresher. Um, he's he's hitting the ball extremely well. Uh, we know how Djokovic plays. It's uh, it's high percentage, and he doesn't miss too much. Um, you know, he plays with incredible depth, but incredible accuracy. So, yeah, Rafa's going to have to come up with some special stuff here. I don't think he can be a set down, but who knows? So, look, under the lights, I just think the conditions are going to favour Djokovic a little more. But let's hope we get a full house, which hasn't been the case for the Parisians all throughout these night sessions that they've had the last couple of years. I'm sure we'll get it for this one, though. Yeah, there's no question. The reason, no doubt, like we do here in Australia when it comes to free-to-air television rights, uh, being at night time, it'll be free to watch yep. uh, as unrestricted content there in France across uh, mm. mobiles and web apps and whatever. So that's the reason they've, they're have they doing it, and it should yep. be an absolute titanic struggle. Saying that, a couple of the others that we thought would maybe be around in the final, you know, four or eight, you know, Daniel Medvedev, Stenof, Stenof, Stefanos Tsitsipas both bowing out overnight. Yeah, incredible. Um, we, we, we certainly went into the day thinking there was the potential of an upset with Holger Rune over Tsitsipas, but didn't see the Medvedev one uh, coming at all. And that's taking nothing away from Marin Cilic, who, 
you know, go back a few years ago, was a Grand Slam champion and runner-up at two other majors and world number three. And he was right there as a solid, consistent top 10 play. Lost form, ranking dipped, and uh, the next generation rose. Uh, but so it's been great to see him find his mojo again. Bit of a, uh, a flashback last night for Marin. Uh, just his, the way he was covering the court and his, um, the, you know, his ground strokes were just devastating. He looked stunned. Uh, Medvedev, he didn't have a reply. Uh, but, you know, for, for Holgerun, look, I love these sort of days. Uh, I couldn't sit still sitting on the set of nine last night. I was pacing around because mm-hmm. uh, I, you want these sort of breakthroughs. And to see a young guy just hold his nerve, the tension would have been running through his veins. He was cramping a little bit. Uh, he's, he's he's got a smile on his face. He plays quick. He's effervescent, and and he just was clutch when it needed to be. And that is a great sign of a young man who can perform under pressure. We're seeing it with Alcaraz. Welcome to the other 19-year-old who is going to be at the pointy end of men's tennis. He is the real deal, Holgerun, and uh, he used the drop shot 32 times in that match to great effect. Uh, and it was it was just the whole all court game, um, you know, particularly serving to that uh, juice side of the court, sliding away from the forehand of Sitsi Passi. He just hit his spots uh, beautifully on serve, and yeah, really really impressive. So now, and I'm glad I'm not calling this one ball by ball on radio. It's Rude Casper Rude versus Holger Rune. <laughs> the, the, the Scandinavian the Scandinavian battle between. Uh, Norway and uh, Denmark. Uh, let's have a look at the women's uh, side of the draw. No, it's quarterfinal stage there, and it's an all-American affair, which will be very interesting between Goff, Goff and, of course, Sloane Stevens. But is anybody up to the standard of the poll? Well, look, she had an interesting first set last night. And uh, you know, going into that match, okay, she's taking on Zhang of China, really promising 19-year-old, had knocked over Simona Halep, really good ball striker. Uh, so this was a combination of her finding her range, but also eager, just missing balls that she hasn't missed for about three months. You know, they weren't missing by much, but just just was miskilling. And that first set, when it went 82 minutes, I mean, she was lucky to get out of that. And then... Obviously, the, the Chinese player had exerted herself so much, um, being pushed around the court that she had the, the strapping put on the thigh. That hampered her movement, and yeah, Eager runs away and wins quite comfortably. So, yeah, it's interesting. The first two matches, he's cruised 6 3, 7 5 in the third round, taken to a tiebreaker in this match. So, yeah, she's going to have to still work really hard to win the title. I think we still rightly have her as the, uh, the number one player to beat, but. I don't know, just, there's just been a couple of signs you know, in the last mm. couple of games that she could just have a bad day. So who do you uh, see as her main challenger then, Brett? Well, I, I think I, I think it is... It, it's it's Coco Goff that can stand up. Now, I think she can beat Stevens uh, with her energy, her firepower. If she can just um, play the moments really, really well and execute, then I think her game is, is bigger uh, than Sloan, who relies more on her timing in her movement, she doesn't play with that same sort of intensity, but he's a nice ball striker when it's working well. But I think it's Coco's time to step up and play a semi-final, at least, um, of a major. So, yeah, I, and look, I, you know, I think Sviantec beats Jessica Bagula. I think it's been an incredible rise for Jessica to get inside mm. the top ten. It's not a game that I probably see as being a top ten player, but uh, hats off to her, all different shapes and sizes. The other one I think is a danger here is Layla Fernandez. She's a beauty, Pete. Uh, US yeah. Open final last year. Advantage of being a lefty. 
she plays with incredible energy and intensity. So she's the one too that I think's got enormous belief that you know she can win the whole thing. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Uh, no, it's exciting times and uh, nothing more exciting. And it gets underway 8.45 local time, which is 2.45 tomorrow morning in uh, Perth and 4.45, quarter to five, uh, your time, Brett. So no doubt you'll be right across it and you'll be certainly on the uh, the three-shot coffee, I reckon, for the five hours that that match might be on. Yep. Uh, we'll be up um, yeah, anchoring the nine coverage tomorrow. So looking forward to that and... Yeah, we'll uh, we'll see what we're in store for. Hopefully, hopefully a classic. We yeah. hope it's not the last time these two play, but if it is, let's hope it's an absolute uh, one of their best. Yeah, and looking forward to it. Good on you, Brett. Thanks for bringing us up to date, and uh, good luck with the coverage. Thanks, Pete. Good Cheers. on you, Brett uh, Phillips. Joining us uh, to talk about the French Open here on Drive with Pete of Lajos, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal will be huge. Uh, looking forward to that. As I mentioned, later on, very shortly, in fact, on the other side of the break, remember these days. Holding the ball, John. Looks like holding the ball. Peter Featherby to take the kick and a 15-metre penalty, and he's playing very well in the centre. Featherby's kick. What's going to happen? Is it a relay, relay kick, kick down the ground? Barry Cable going in there, doing a little bit of sorting out. That's amazing. Barry Cable in the centre of the ground. Sheedy. Sheedy. No love lost between those two. Developed a bit of aggression. Has our Barry Cable uh, over there, Lou? I don't think so. I think it's the side of uh, a side being rattled on the other side, playing at kill, calm and collect. That's a little force now, Good comment. There you go. Barry Cable. He was playing for North Melbourne then and came back to play for WA in the State of Origin match. The very first one at Subiaco Oval in 1977. And he had a bit of a, a scuffle there with Kevin Sheedy, who was playing with Richmond those days and then went on, as we know, Sheeds to coach Essendon. For 27 years. We're going to speak to the gentleman. Well, we've tracked him down in Dubai that started State of Origin football and the way we knew it during the late 70s, 80s, into the early 90s before it came down in a screaming heap. And we couldn't sustain it. That is the AFL, but certainly the NRL did. Leon Larkin will join us after the break here on Drive with Peter Vlahos. Thanks to Toolmart, the complete tool centre. The Drive Show with Peter Vlahos. Toolmart, your complete tool centre. Proudly WA-owned and operated for over 40 years. 5.30 it is here on Drive with Peter Vlahos. Join us any time on the Temper of Bedshed. Text line 0487 736 736 or the Scarborough Toyota open line 13 12 55. And don't forget the double demerits apply from midnight Thursday until midnight Monday for speeding or using a mobile phone or radar detector while driving. Get caught and you could lose your licence twice as fast. Let's talk about State of Origin. Will it ever return to the Australian Football League landscape? The man with the idea. We've tracked him down. He's in Dubai, and I spoke to him a bit earlier today. We're talking about Leon Larkin as we revisit how it all came to pass. Leon, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, mate. Pleasure to be with you. Now, I remember you many, many moons ago when I was just pioneering my way into WA media. You were then involved with the Subiaco Football Club, and I believe you've been gallivanting, if we can term it that way, around the world for the last three decades. Tell our listeners what you've been up to. Well, I, I went into the hotel industry, the international hotel industry, and I've been managing hotels all around the world. And we find you in Dubai. 
Hiru, and even some of my very strong football connections and cricket connections from my Perth days, many have come to visit me in my, the different places I have been in, so I've kept in touch. Have you flown down under and to maybe reacquaint yourself with your childhood home? Well, I, yes, I have. I, and I, I came to a few reunions. If you remember, there have been a 30-year reunion, a 20-year reunion. So we've had reunions in the past of the first State of Origin match. Do you miss Australian rules football? Oh, I, I watch it avidly every game, every weekend. And you must have noticed a few changes from when you were involved, of course, as a senior figure in the West Australian Football League. As I said, if Rip Van Winkle woke up today after 50 years, he would notice incredible changes. Changes that have been subtle that people don't realise. Quality of the playing surface is one. It leads to a much better game. The quality of the playing surfaces with cricket pitches in them and so on way back 40, 50 years ago, they were muddy and hopeless. But look at them today. They're pristine. What's the other change that you reckon uh, if you just woke up now in 2022, you would have noticed from the late 70s? Oh, I think one of the great changes have been the involvement of women in football, not only as a playing group, but also uh, as backup staff. There are a lot of women involved in football, and I think that, that is, a, that is a great step in the right direction. If you're going to engage the public, uh, the recent election showed that, that women are a powerful force. Before we talk about the concept that has uh, now put you into Australian rules football folklore here in Australia, what about the technology that uh, sport has brought to our, well, to our screens more so than not, and even those people that go to the grounds these days? Uh, in, in 1979, I was writing for the Sunday Times and I predicted that there would be a lot more technology, particularly in cricket, but some in football, and those ideas were poo-pooed a bit. But it's exactly what's happened. And I predict that in 10 years, maybe, maybe a bit more, there will be no umpires. Everything will be done by technology and there will be no, um, no defiance of any decisions because they'll all be 100% correct. Well, you're a pioneer. Uh, you looked at the future and you came up with State of Origin. Before we go back to how it all originated and your experiences in, in putting this fantastic concept that we miss so much now in Australian rules football, are you sad of its demise and particularly looking at what it's done for rugby league? Yes and no. Yes, of course. In um, Stephen Hawke's great book on polypharma, Polly mentions that he believed that State of Origin was the foundation for the, glo- for the uh, nationwide competition. And the nationwide competition has done a tremendous thing for the growth of Australian football. And uh, the AFL have come out now as being by far the strongest football league in the country. And uh, so if State of Origin played a part in that, as Polly reckons it did, well, I'm very proud of that. But players want to play at the very top level. That's why things like the Olympics are important. Club football is fantastic today, but players still want to test themselves with the very best at all times. And that is why State of Origin was always important. And that's why it's important in rugby league. But the advantage that rugby league have, of course, is there are only two states, whereas Australian football is a bit more spread out than that. But there are solutions to state of origin, and and I'd like to share some of those with you today. Well, let's uh, go back, and I'll ask you a couple of other questions about the modern-day game uh, when we conclude. But is it true uh, you were the marketing manager of the Subiaco Footy Club at that time, and you saw Polly Farmer put on the big V 
and play against Western Australia at Subiaco Oval, and you thought, this cannot happen. The great from Sister Kate, who went to Maddington, who went to East Perth, and, of course, to Geelong, and brought so much excitement and thrills to a West Australian football public was playing for the opposition. Was that the time when you sat back and thought, this can't happen again? Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy. We were beaten, being beaten by our own. It just didn't make any sense. It, just made, it was just a, a progression that, in the end, State of Origin had to happen because of pride. You know, we had to show that West Australian football was strong. And all we were, all we were doing were producing players to go and play in a stronger competition in the, in the VFL, but we were getting no real compensation for it, not from a matter of West Australian pride. And that's why State of Origin came about. Saying that, it took a while to get off the ground. When you first took the idea to the then Victorian Football League, what was the reaction? Well, the reaction was, of course, they were extremely conservative. And the reaction was, no, we don't, you know, we, we control football. We're not having any interlopers or outsiders telling us what ideas or what we should be doing. And the way we got it done actually was quite, quite uh, interesting and maybe relevant today, it was the, the AFL Players Association was in its infancy. Don Scott was the president, and we got them involved. And once the players became involved and said, we want to do this, then things started to change. But the crazy thing was, and life is all about timing. And at the same time, the AFL had a change at the top and a new breed of administrators came in under Alan Ayler and he wanted an Australian competition, so he endorsed it. But the crazy thing is when he endorsed it, the WAFL then said no. So we had to go back and convince them. It took two years before the first game was played. But saying that, Leon, you would have done a lot of reconnaissance and a lot of research and spoken to a lot of stakeholders and everybody was supportive of it? Yes. The players, the players were extremely supportive, and that's what got it through in the end. It was really a bit of a player revolution, a soft revolution, but that's what it was. And it was because of the players wanted it. They wanted to play at the very top level. And the interstate players who were playing in the VFL, they wanted to prove that, hey, where I come from, I'm proud of being a West Australian. And that's where it came from. So all of a sudden, it was given the all clear and it was ticked off. And the first game was at Subiaco Oval on the 8th of October, 1977. How did the players, how did the coach and how did the whole structure come together, this state of origin team from Western Australia? I had a very supportive president at Subiaco in Lance Perkins and the other board members there were extremely supportive because we saw it, it was a fundraising think for Subiaco and we needed the money and uh, so the support came from them and we appointed Polly as the coach. We went to Melbourne and spoke to all of the West Australian players there that were based, were playing in Melbourne. They fully supported it and once we got the Players Association on side then the whole thing just happened and fortunately for us under Alan Aylett, uh, the VFL were totally on side. So uh, that's how the whole thing just rolled on. And over a period of six months, we, uh, we got it done. It was interesting that you make a point there that Subiaco were finding it difficult financially. And we know during the 70s, Subiaco aren't the Subiaco of now. They were a struggling WAFL club. So initially, the concept is being the marketing manager of Subiaco was to try and get funds into the football club. And you thought State of Origin was the way to go because the game was being played at your home ground. Correct. 
We owned the game and we took all of the revenue, the gate revenue. Did that stay that way in the years to come after, you know, the West Australian? No, no. The, the WAFL then took it over and uh, uh, the late Vince Jovic hated me saying this, but I had to pay for my own ticket to go to the next year's game. So it all changed within a year, did it, from the time that all the revenue went to oh, Subiaco? Yeah, it, anything, it, changed, it changed in 12 months. Yeah, it, that's right. Anything successful was immediately taken over. How much resistance was there from Subiaco and people like yourself? We didn't have a lot of choice. If we wanted to, we were still a member of the WAFL, so we just went along with it, but we were hoping to get a little bit more um, kudos for what we did. Did you feel that uh, you as a club and as individuals were let down by the governing body at that stage? Yes. Because the first game saw WA record a big win, 23-13, 151 to Victoria's 8-9-57. That would have got people talking. Can you recall how many people attended, uh, what the reaction was with the, Vicks, with the Vicks getting smashed and how much of a windfall it was for Subiaco? First of all, there were nearly 30,000 people. One radio station in Perth said to me, we're not coming, we're going to Rottnest Island because it was a long weekend, nobody's going to attend this game. Well, poor old John Watts on 6PR, he was the only one sent by that state. He had to commentate the game uh, on his own because nobody believed. But we got 30,000 people there. And the, 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 the one, in, one of the indelible memories I have of that game was that WA kicked 6-4 to 0 that was the quarter-time school. And what was and the, the reaction? the crowd was yep. stunned. The crowd was stunned. And what about the windfall to Subiaco? How much did you make from that game, do you recall? It was about $20,000, which was a lot of money in 1977. And what did it do for Subiaco, that uh, injection of funds? Stayed off uh, a lot of financial difficulty that the club was going through, and uh, then it led to another step, and eventually... You know, uh, when Michael Carlyle took over after Kevin Merrifield, then the club went from strength to strength and has become, became the behemoth that it is today. So then the WAFL took control of it and, of course, it became went from strength to strength and it was shifted to Tuesday afternoons. And, of course, that yes. became a massive, massive event. Oh, I went to a couple of them and they were incredible games of football. Some of the best football I've ever seen, any of us have ever seen in our lives until that stage. Were you surprised that it didn't continue longer than it actually did, State of Origin football from an Australian rules concept? And if you had to point the figure at maybe an individual or a series of people that maybe determined its demise, can you maybe share that with us? Look, I think that um, club football has always been a strong ethos particularly coming from the VFL. They don't want to see their players injured or hurt in any way. And so to a lot of people, state football was never that important. It was always important for players. And the players still, I'm sure they still want it. The top players, as I said early in this conversation, it's like the Olympics. You want to play against the very best at all times. And I think that, there is a place for it. It only lasted just under two decades. Uh, we know during the first half of the 1980s, the concept was reportedly uh, not being as popular. Uh, by 1995, the last big state of origin game was played in Melbourne and it was between Victoria and South Australia. And that was, of course, the game where Ted Whitten, the promoter of Victoria and state of origin, yep. 
was terminally ill with prostate cancer and was paraded around the ground. Once Teddy left and that rivalry uh, or that passion for Victoria and wearing the big V uh, maybe went with him in some ways. Did you see it that way? Yes, I did. Uh, it always meets a champion. You've got to remember, nobody wants to um, admit it, but the, the AFL is still VF, very VFL-centric. You know, everything revolves around Melbourne to a certain extent. I'll tell you what, Leon, it's been interesting because, uh, as I said, you're in Dubai. There's been a little conversation uh, centred around Australian rules football for years. It's the home and away series and a final series, and the ultimate is the grand final. And you've got Rugby League where they have a magic round where they bring all the teams together, like a case in Brisbane a couple of weeks ago, and all games are played over three days in Brisbane, and they've got the magical three-game State of Origin series, of which one of those games, Game 2, will be played here at Optus Stadium in a few weeks' time. And a lot of commentators are saying the AFL needs something else rather than just relying on what it's had for a long, long time. Because people will start exploring to see what else satisfies them when it comes to sports satisfaction. What are your thoughts? Is the AFL, should it continue the way it is, or does it need to try and reinvent something? No, I I think that uh, the uh, the Players Association should get involved for the men, but I think there should certainly be a state of origin match now for AFL doubles. That would be a good starting point, uh, and that would attract a lot of attention. But there is a place for state-of-origin football again today. The time has come around again. It's done a full circle, and I believe there's a place for it. And how would you run it, Leon, if you're in charge? Uh, as we know, uh, we're about to possibly have a Tasmanian team come into the AFL. So we've got Tasmania, South Australia, Western Australia, and Victoria predominantly. As the football states, how would you run it? Okay, there are two things. One is a match after the end of the the season, as the first one was. The AFL is partly there, but it will go the full circle. If you look at the the NFL in America, there is a two-week break before the Super Bowl. That will happen in Australia eventually because the clubs want their players to be fit and get rid of all their niggles and so on and have time. So if there's a two-week break between the last final and the grand final then you could play a state of origin match in that in that middle week. Yeah, fair call. All right, we'll see what our listeners have to say about that. Leon, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program today. There's been a lot of talk, as I said, in AFL circles and trying to maybe create something that increases the interest of Australian rules football here in this country. And uh, I think uh, the AFL is working behind the scenes to see what they can provide to add to what they've already got. Thanks for joining us. When you're back in Perth? Uh, probably by the end of the year. All right. Safe travels. Lovely speaking to you. And we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much, Peter. Anytime. The Drive Show with Peter Vlahos. Toolmark, your complete tool centre. Proudly WA owned and operated for over 40 years. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that chat that I had with uh, Leon Larkin, uh, the originator, the ideas man when it came to state of origin football. Great to have your company on the program. Uh, we've just got a few moments left. We'll feature a bit about uh, what Matthew Pavrich uh, said about the West Coast Eagles rebuild, if we've got time before we go. But for those people listening on SEN Track 657, from 7 o'clock tonight, it's the uh, Greyhounds uh, program and uh, Callum Robson is our Greyhounds expert, and he joins us on the program now. Thanks for joining us, Callum. 
How are we? I'm very well. Uh, let's have a look at what's happening in the world of greyhounds in particular. What's happening down there in Mandra? Yeah, some good racing tonight uh, down at Mandra. There's um, plenty of 405 and 490 races. Maybe not the quality if you get on your Friday and Saturday night, but um, still pretty good races to have a bet in. Saying that, there's uh, enough meetings happening uh, every week when it comes to WA Greyhounds, isn't there, Callum? Yeah, seven days a week, which is uh, good. You can um, never really miss out on, on the Greyhound racing and um, alternate between Mandra and Cannington at the moment, but um, it's very good. Okay, and saying that, on the program tonight, what will you be looking at? Uh, we'll be going through races um, five through to ten, uh, the back end of the program for... Um, Mandra will be discussing what's happening in WA Greyhounds um, and plenty of other topics um, regarding WA Greyhounds. Good stuff. So that's on 7 o'clock tonight on SEN Track, Callum, and you'll be front and centre with all the information. Exactly, uh, precisely. So tune in late. There's a couple of good bets late and uh, plenty more to discuss. Good stuff, Callum. Thanks for joining us. So there you go on SEN Track 657. We've got uh, the Greyhounds program from 7 o'clock tonight. As I mentioned, Matthew Pavlich came out on SEN earlier today and gave his thoughts on where the West Coast Eagles are at. Well, it's really about what your strategy is. Is your strategy about going to the draft at the end of the year or are you getting rid of your number one pick and going for Luke Jackson? If, if your strategy is the latter, then maybe try to find a, a very good VFL, SNFL waffle player who's early 20s and, and the best one in, in that league rather than trying to find the best young talent because you, you're giving away the first pick, right? So, And you're going for, okay, we're not rebuilding, we're just going to keep topping up and, and, and that's probably what they've done since 2010. You Which know, strategy should it be? Should be the, it should be the former. Go, go to the draft, top up, get young talent. Yeah, y- y- yeah you can't sort of be caught in between. And, and right now, I think they know that's what they have to do. I think that's where they're going, where they're going to go. But, yeah, uh, why, but why? I mean, they sort of made that decision a couple of times. Greg Clark's an example of it. Connor West is an example of it. Good players and, and getting mm. their opportunity at AFL level and, and, and good luck to them. But... That's not the long-term solution for West Coast. So there you go. That's Matthew Pavlich. And just some other news. Australia's chances of qualifying for the World Cup have taken a bit of a hit after their star player, Tom Rogic, withdrew from the soccer squad. The 29-year-old, who's played, as we know, a big role in helping Ange Postacoglu guide Celtic to the Scottish title, uh, and their 10th league title in the past 11 years has decided... uh, because of personal reasons, uh, he's withdrawn from uh, the games. And the first one, of course, is against the United Arab Emirates uh, next week. And then uh, following that, if they win that, they take on Peru for the right to get to Qatar in November and play in the World Cup, uh, the biggest event on the calendar every four years. And just repeating, I spoke to him earlier, but the big event tomorrow morning, 2.45 our time, is the French Open tennis quarterfinal between Rafael Nadal. He takes on longtime rival Novak Djokovic for a place in the semis. As we know, Rafael is a 13-time French Open champion and currently leads the big three when it comes to Grand Slam wins. He sits on 21, followed by Djokovic on 20 and Federer also on 20. We'll have a full wrap on that uh, tomorrow here on Drive with Peter Vlahos. So I look forward to your company from 5 o'clock tomorrow.
Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Bray. Thanks for joining us on the program. Not forgetting on Thursday night, it's AFL Team Selections Night. Kim Hagdorn joins us in the studio to look through everything that's happening regarding uh, the AFL teams, and in particular, the West Coast Eagles and the Dockers. Thanks for your time. I look forward to it again from 5 o'clock tomorrow. It's all thanks to Toolmart, the complete tool centre. Have a great Tuesday night.